Today, well, I'm John Kane, and I welcome you to Let's Talk Native on, uh, well, what, what day we got here? Uh, today's Tuesday. Yeah, okay, normal day. Sorry, I didn't adjust my, <laughs> my date here. It's, uh, it's October 29th, though. Uh, while this program may not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do encourage and, in some cases, start conversations. We don't do prayers or buffalo speeches. We take a tough look at history, oppression, and survival. We talk about culture, the arts, politics, and identity. And we may step on a few toes along the way. But our real goal here is to bring people together by breaking down what separates us. We will take on the false narratives and provide critical thinking to all that is heaped upon us. And we'll do it all right here from the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. So let's talk native. But first, let me remind people that we stream audio of the show on our website, which is www.letstalknative.com. We take the uh, we, we re- record video of the show. We stream that video on our YouTube channel, or on our uh, Facebook pages, I'm sorry, um, via Facebook Live. We take the audio and we put it up as podcast after the show, and we take the video and we put it up on our YouTube channel, which is Let's Talk Native TV. All right, got that out. <laughs> uh, look, I'm John Kane. I am the host and producer of the show, and I'm joined in studio by Jake Proud, who uh, manages our audio and our video, so we can put it all up on our podcast and our YouTube channels. Um, but let's get into it. I... Look, there are a lot of words that sometimes feel like they are specifically intended to to uh, to talk, you know, to to be referenced to Native people. The word sovereignty, for instance, you know, it's not really one of our words, but it's one. It's it's a word that you know people oftentimes uh, connect directly to to Native people trying to assert their own distinction on autonomy. Not really our word. It's really a word more about power and control and less about about a free and independent existence. But I, I, I see how that happens. Now, another word that we see or, or we hear and we see thrown around a lot is genocide. And there's also a tendency to take a word like genocide and alter it slightly, sticking the word cultural in front of it or, or, or something else. Uh, so I want to I define what genocide is, tell a little bit of history, where it comes from. Define it, explain it, give examples of it, in fact, as I as I give the definition of genocide, I you, you may think it's not even necessary for me to give examples, but um, but I'm but I, I will do that. And you know, I, I think it's important that people understand the history of of um, of the word. It it is not some it is is a word that basically got used to um, uh, give clarity, not without with no reference to native people. Let me let me back it up. So genocide is a word that gets coined in 1944 by a, by a man named uh, Raphael Lemkin. Now, he defines this word, and he invents, he invents the word, essentially putting a, two Greek uh, you know, prefix and a, and a suffix together, uh, geno, which you know, sometimes you, means uh, a race or a people, and side, which you know, essentially means uh, killing. Now, it doesn't mean just the killing of a racial group, uh, much too... <laughs> Uh, the dismay of some people like Suzanne Harjo, who wanted to argue with me over what the definition of genocide was. It is it is m- much more broad than that. And you know, and I w- when I was doing battle with Miss Harjo over this thing, I appreciate you know folks like Stephen Newcomb weighing in and uh, helping, trying to help me to set her straight. Whether it really did or not, you know, who knows? But um, you know, and the best way to to kind of explain what the definition of genocide is. Or, or what genocide means is to get to the specific specific definition. But before Lemkin contrives this word and and tries to define it, 
there was another word that was used. So again, 1944 is when he coins the phrase and begins to introduce the word genocide and the concept that he wants that word to represent. But before that, there was another word. Uh, the word was called denationalization. Now, that word began to take on other meanings than its original intent. Originally, the idea of denationalization, which was beginning, which was being regarded as a war crime, was the idea of stripping away a people's national character and imposing the national character of another people upon them. I mean, so that was a, a basic definition of what denationalization meant. Uh, and and again, it was being regarded as, as early as 1913. The word denationalization was describing that activity that, again, was becoming regarded as a war crime. It was being touted and promoted as a war crime. Now, this is, and this is all because of stuff happening in Europe, mind you. None of this has anything to do with, with Native people. And when, again, as I get into the definition of genocide, which would replace the, the concept of denationalization, you're going to wonder how could that word have paralleled so much of the activity that Native people have experienced. Um, it, it's, it's almost impossible to believe. But let me, let me get right into it. Let me, let me explain. And this, just in case you're wondering where this definition comes, again, not from us. In 1946, there was a convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide. So in that convention, when they do these conventions, they usually issue a statement. Or, or some sort of resolution or conclusion or summary of, uh, you know, some sort of declaration comes out of this stuff. In Article 2, Article two of the published results uh, result of that, um, that convention, this, the United Nations would define genocide as any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a nation, a national, uh, ethical, racial, or religious group, such as, and this is A through E, so you know there's there's five um, components, and any one of these constitutes genocide, in whole or in part, as, as intended. Again, A, killing members of the group. So whether you kill the entire, or the intent is to kill them all, or kill a partial um, number of the group, that is still genocide. Uh, causing B, causing serious bodily harm or mental harm to members of the group. C, deliberately inflicting upon the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And I'm going to get back to these, so bear with me. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And E, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, the crazy part is every one of these things was done to Native people. Systematically. And, you know, and the, I guess the other part is is understanding that genocide is is not just a, um, uh, a pattern being imposed by a, a government or a, a hostile government. It can be done by by a people, by people who are part of that that group. I mean, and I don't mean just one guy committing a, a you know a series of crimes. You one person can't commit genocide, but if you have a a social acceptance or societal acceptance 
to again create the conditions to make the people cease to exist then and the government does nothing to stop it that's still genocide so uh, again let me go through that uh, a through uh, a through e killing members of the group now there is no question through the means of taking scalps again where the word redskins come from taking scalps and, and paying bounties to kill native people the the massacres the executions the forced marches and uh and uh you know the removal act and the and the death of you know through starvation depriving people of of anything that sustains life that is all a killing killing a group of people so there's no question that killing people is an act of genocide but b causing serious bodily harm or mental harm to members of the group now there are any number of ways that you can obviously obviously physically uh, harm people you can do things like like Columbus did, you know, the mutilation. Not and even if, whether that mutilation leads to death or not. I mean, obviously, if you cut off somebody's hand like Columbus did, and uh, and then you hang it around the neck, and then they bleed to death, then that's not just the idea of doing bodily harm. That's that's killing somebody. But the idea of disfiguring people, scarring people, um, again, doing some of these things that that cause bodily harm or mental harm. So the things that you do, introduction of alcohol. Now, although that oftentimes could lead lead to death, it it certainly caused mental and bodily harm to people. And when you consider, you know, like with what was done with crack cocaine to you know to black people, the same thing was done with alcohol to native people. So that's just an example. It's not the only example of the kind of physical and mental uh, harm that was was done to native people, but clearly. What native people? The idea of removing them from the land—that that, that it causes physical and mental trauma. I mean, the idea of stripping that part of, of, of a person's identity, where they live, their home—that may not seem like physical or bodily harm, but it certainly is mental harm. It certainly uh, is anguish and all that. Uh, C, and this is a, this is an important one. It's the longest of the five examples or, or definitions of genocide: deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part now assimilation is genocide assimilation is about creating the conditions where people cease to exist i mean assimilation also is goes back to that definition of denationalization the idea of stripping away a people's national character and imposing another uh national character upon them or cultural identity upon them I mean, so C, although it's it's spelled out as one of the definitions of genocide, it is clearly one of those things that's a throwback to the to the original concept of denationalization, C- creating the conditions that are calculated to bring about the destruction, the physical destruction of a people, in whole or in part. And and I keep wanting to mention this in whole or in part because this gets back to why it is on the Canadian side when they put together a commission to study missing and murdered indigenous women the people who were a part of preparing that report said it is genocide the the, the conditions that that create missing and murdered indigenous women in canada and, and obviously in the u.s side but this was a commission done on the, on the canadian side represents genocide not cultural genocide not gender genocide but genocide now why because when you allow the death and destruction and of course you also have 
some of the police involvement in some of the uh, the missing and murdered indigenous women but the failure to prosecute investigate um charge indict punish you know in, in any way in shape or form enforce the existing laws that should that should be utilized to to stop put an end prevent and and again prosecute what what is happening to the native women the failure to do that is, is is a failure of governance and the failure to do that is allowing a significant portion of our population to not only be eliminated killed in, in the case of murdered missing in the in the case of you know you know might be killed might not be killed but certainly creating the conditions where our women again a part of our of our people our women are all undergoing a certain amount of uh, of psychological damage because they're living under threat. So there's no question that the conditions that are allowed to continue or encouraged to continue in the U.S. and Canada that create missing and murdered indigenous women do constitute, by definition, by international definition, mind you, genocide. D, imposing measures... Um, intended to prevent births within the group. Now, look, it wasn't just in residential schools, but in residential schools, there was a wholesale use of sterilization against uh, against young girls. In particular, young girls who were all, were being clearly defined as full blood. Again, we get into this whole blood quantum issue, and and there's a reason that the full blooded girls were uh, were being chosen for this, uh, not just for this this mutilation. But for this sterilization, the reason is because if a, if a young girl was already mixed, they felt like, all right, assimilation is already on its way. You know, if they're already half native, half white, then their kids, you know, there's a good chance their kids are going to be, um, you know, uh, less and less native. But they felt like if you've got um, a native girl who's, who's clearly full-blooded, they may not be have the propensity to have have children w- with a white man, so let's just not let them have children. So the sterilization of of young girls, be, you know, began in large part at residential schools, but through Indian Health Services, it would continue through not just through foster care, but through again the United States fulfilling its commitment to provide health care to Native people in exchange for some of the ceded lands. That healthcare oftentimes included our, our women being sterilized, unbeknownst to them, against their will and without their knowledge. So, I mean, D is clearly, and, and one of the reasons we know this is because back in, what, I think it was 73 or somewhere along those lines, when AIM and others took over the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C., they uncovered the files that, 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 that talked about the sterilization programs in uh, being operated out of the uh, the interior department so we know it we, we've seen the evidence we know that that exists and of course e forcibly transferring children of the group to another group i mean look that is not just the idea of of the residential school residential schools stripping kids away from the families and then putting them in essentially an assimilation factory and i guess that might seem like an exaggeration it's not. But these schools were considered asylums. I mean, to be clear, they weren't just schools. I mean, here, in, even in here in the Cataraugus Territory of Sanctuary Nation, 
when you talk to people who went to Thomas Indian School, they refer, they used to refer to it as, as Salem. Yeah, I, I went to Salem. And what Salem is, is, is a kind of a bastardizing of the word asylum. Because that's what the schools where Native kids were being forced to go to, that's where they're being... Why were they called asylums? Because just by virtue of being Native, our kids were being considered um, uh, mentally handicapped. So the race or ethnicity of our people was was already being regarded as a, as a disability. No, it wasn't, but that's the way the state and the federal government were treating it. And of course, this forcibly removing of children didn't, it wasn't just about residential schools. It's the foster care program. It's the 60s swoop. It's what the, the, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Maine was studying. The, the wholesale stripping away of kids from Native families, placing them in, uh, in white households. So they could, they could claim to be doing something that was generous, merciful. I don't know. Um, altruistic but it was really about calculating the physical destruction of a people by stripping away culture by stripping away identity so residential schools clearly represented genocide represent genocide so on the on the canadian side maybe we'll play uh the murray porter song at the at the break uh is sorry enough because that song is based on the um uh the the truth and well the the truth and reconciliation commission that was set up to look at uh residential schools in Canada. So out of that comes a report. In the report, Murray Sinclair, a native person, who is uh the one chairing and heading up this this commission, uh again, even before this missing and murdered indigenous women determination, but this seemed almost like I don't know, like groundbreaking, but he but he called the residential schools of that era cultural genocide, and and look, everybody's oh he did it, he called it genocide. No, he called it cultural genocide, and that's what I was talking about when I first opened up on the subject. The idea of taking the word genocide and then sticking a word in front of it as if somehow you're softening it. Make no mistake, anything you do that creates the conditions to cause the physical destruction of a people, like stripping away the lang- language or, 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 or national character, is genocide. You don't have to stick the word cultural in front of it or spiritual or, you know, or, or ethnic. Genocide covers all those things. It doesn't need a precursor. In fact, the precursor oftentimes makes it seem it's like taking the, the word sovereignty and putting the word tribal in front of it. Oh, we don't mean real sovereignty. We mean, we mean tribal sovereignty. Oh, nation. No, we'll put the word tribal in front. We don't mean a real nation. We mean a tribal nation. I mean, that's what these precursors do. If, if you want to diminish the, the, the definition or the, the meaning of a word, stick words in front of it. So that's what Murray Sinclair did, and that's why I opposed it. Now, one thing that's, that's worth mentioning is, again, you could assume since these definitions and, and the whole idea of having a, a convention for the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide, since it comes in 1946, is, oh, well, yeah, most of what the United States did was before 1946. So, you know, they're, they're kind of, they were grandfathered in, you know, um, 
you know, some sort of forgiveness for what they did to Native people. Well, the problem is, much of this stuff continues today, and much of these things were happening after 1946, including residential schools, the the stripping, the the, the foster care programs, the sterilization programs, and of course, assimilation programs that, that continue today. Now, so well, clearly, the United States must be must have been punished for for genocide. Hell no. Because look, it is great to have these declarations, these conventions, these you know, uh, all these you know these tough statements come out of the UN. But make no mistake about it, the United States runs over whatever the UN says anyway. They're never held accountable. I mean, look, even even when you think about developing the definition of war crimes coming after World War II. I mean, the, uh, what would be defined as the, as the crimes that the Nuremberg trials would go after. The United States dropped two atomic bombs on civilian populations. If anybody could have and should have been convicted and, and charged with a war crime, the United States should have. Instead, we're going to teach our kids in school, oh yeah, it was a humane thing to do. It saved lives. Bullshit. You can say what you want about what what Nazi Germany did to, did, did to Jews and Moors and uh, you know the Gypsy communities and that kind of stuff, and there is substantial evidence to prove that the the acts of genocide were committed by um, and war crimes were committed by uh, by Germany. But what the United States has has been engaged in since then, and including then. Clearly, uh, I mean, there's almost every president, you know, since uh, since FDR, could have been and should have been prosecuted for war crimes, war crimes, and they haven't, including Barack Obama and and Donald Trump. But it just doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that the crimes haven't been committed. It just means that the toothless UN, which is good at making these statements and statements that we should, I mean, look, we we should talk about this stuff. I understand the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has no teeth. But we should still, still talk about it. Hell, if, if the Supreme Court Justice John Marshall can cite the doctrine of Christian discovery, a religious dogma that certainly has no constitutional standing, can you cite that as the means for, for ruling in a, in a case that would, that would, you know, just forever establish a false claim to to legitimate land title by the United States, then certainly we should be able to introduce some of the language of some of these UN declarations um, in, in not only in our in our court cases, but as a part of our position. Let a judge say, "Hell no!" The UN Declaration of, of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has no meaning here. Let him say, "Hell no!" The UN definition of genocide has no meaning here. I'd love to get that on record. I mean, and, and I'm not saying they won't do it because they, they probably will say, hell no, get that out of here. That, that, that has no place in this court. Well, well, either did the doctor of Christian discovery, but you let it in. Either to some of this other bullshit that the evangelical right manages to make as arguments in their, uh, in the, in their cases, uh, you know, that, that usually are trying to defend bigotry. So it is, it's important that we understand this. Look, before I go to break, as I said, genocide, was an expression that was coined 
I mean, the the word was literally created by uh, Raphael Lemkin in 1944. But in case, again, for for people like Suzanne Harjo, and I'm sure you're listening, yeah, right? <laughs> Let me explain. For those of you who think that genocide does not apply to Native people, in spite of that five part definition, this is what Raphael Lemkin wrote. Generally speaking, genocide does not necessarily mean the immediate destruction of a nation, except when accomplished by mass killings of all members of of a nation. It is intended, rather, to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of, of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the groups themselves. The, object, the objectives of such a plan would be the disintegration of the political and social institutions of culture, language, national feelings, religion, and the economic existence of a national group, and the destruction of the personal security, liberty, health, dignity, and even the lives of the individuals belonging to such a group. Now, so when I, when I hear someone like Suzanne Harder saying, well, that's not what genocide means. This is the guy who invented the word. This is what genocide means. Not just because he invented it, but because the entire international community accepts this as the definition. Not the killing of a race. Not the narrow scope that somebody like Suzanne Harjo has, has the gall to suggest that when we use the word genocide, that we're wrong in using it. The hell with Suzanne Harjo. Jesus. All right. Uh, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we'll take a break. And I'm going to cool off a little. I'll take a drink here. <laughs> we'll be back after this. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Now you say you're sorry. It's not what you say, it's what you do. Tell us you'll do better, but it's hard to believe in you. The day has finally come Told the world That you were wrong Far too many Have passed on now When it's sorry From my culture So many years 
lost to use another language. the well, you spoke your native tongue. Tried to kill our spirit here, but our hearts still Thanks for coming back. Uh, look, I wanted to let that song play out a little bit because it's it's powerful. It's 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 one of my favorite Murray Porter songs, and it and it specifically addresses just what you know our kids went through with residential schools, which is a significant part of our charge against the United States for genocide. I mean, and obviously we can go back. I mean, and and it's look, we can talk about Columbus. We can talk about the, what the Dutch did, what the Spanish did, what the French did. We can talk about all that, but. The fact is that we are still living in in an illegal occupation uh, by a country that was born out of all of those nations for all intents and purposes, and the genocide continues. And the United States has been the longest perpetuator of genocide on this continent. Um, you know, we can talk about what the Spanish did ha- did do and have done and continue to do in South America, but. On, in this hemisphere, you know, it's it's the U.S. and Canada, or in this continent, I should say, North America. It's it's Turtle Island. It's the U.S. and Canada. Again, that that's the great Murray Porter doing. Is sorry enough. Uh, this weekend, by the way, this Saturday um, at the Seneca Niagara Casino is the nineteenth nineteenth um, annual. It's it's the nineteenth NAMI Awards. It's it's there's been. Uh, um, it, it goes back longer than that. They, they had a f- few years where they had to skip a year because of Superstorm Sandy and that kind of stuff. But this is the 19th NAMI Awards, Native American Music Awards. Murray Porter is up for uh, uh, you know a couple of, of NAMIs. Um, this song that we just played is off of his uh, Songs Living Life Played uh, CD, which won a Juno Award, which is essentially the Canadian version of a, of a Grammy. <clears throat> uh, so... He's his music has been celebrated not just as indigenous music but but across the board, um, and Murray will be performing and he will be uh, and he's nominated for um, again for a, a couple of uh, a couple of awards uh, you know best uh, uh, record of the year I think it is or be, uh, best recording um, and male artist I think uh, male blues artist or, or something along those lines but um, uh, I do plan to go look I was asked to possibly even live stream you know some uh, a bit of the red carpet uh, as people came in I'm not sure that I'm, I, I I can actually pull that off but uh, 
I certainly appreciate the the invite, and um, you know, I may try to bring my my portable recorder and try to get a couple of interviews or something like that. Maybe I'll get some people to sing praises of Let's Talk Native or whatever. We'll we'll see what we do here. But um, uh, unfortunately, I can't tell you to to go get tickets to watch the Nammies because it's sold out. I mean, they and this is the first time, and you know, they've changed the format a little bit. It, it isn't just rows of seating. It's uh, it's it's more of an elegant and a a gala so it's more like you know tables and you know with, with you know with, with some food and that kind of stuff um last year was was the first time they changed the format and this year they are completely sold out there's not a chair left in the house so uh that's you know again that's this saturday uh, from 7 to 10 p.m now i assume that some of this is going to be recorded and we will be able to somehow direct you to to see some of this um west studi who just this week received a uh a, an oscar the first not just the first male, but the first actor, native actor, to receive a um, an, an Academy Award um, as a lifetime achievement. Now, the reason we have to specify first male and first actor is because the first native person to receive an Oscar was actually Buffy St. Marie. And she uh, and she received it for um, uh, Lift Us Up um, or Up Where We Belong, which was the, 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 the song, the title song to the, uh, an officer and a gentleman. And she wrote that with her husband at the time, and she uh, that that song re- received um, uh, an Academy Academy Award, and so that Buffy St. Marie is the first Native person, although she wasn't an actress, um, she was the first Native to receive a, an Academy Award, and that was specifically tied to a specific movie. Um, West Duty is um, is receiving as an actor um, the first he's the first male the first actor uh, Native to um, to receive an Academy Award, and and he's going to be hosting along with uh, Mickey James. So, anyway, I look forward to that. That's that's coming up this weekend. Wanted to mention it because of the song. Wanted to mention it because of my buddy Murray uh, coming back from the West Coast to the East Coast to be, uh, or the East Side of Turtle Island to to uh, to do this uh, do this show. So, looking looking forward to that. Um, hey, look, I do want to thank my sponsors. I want to, um, you know, give give a shout out to, you know, to my, my good friends and, and supporters, Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of biz- businesses, uh, Eric White in ERW Enterprises, my, my friends at Grand River Enterprises and uh, uh, um, Native Wholesale Supply. Um, look, you three entities, you you three are the are the ones that um, that help us continue. We are in our tenth year. Very proud to say that we are in our, in our tenth year of doing not just this show, but just doing a show like this, where we can we can speak openly, candidly, directly, and strongly. Look, I'm not going to pull any punches. There's no, there's no soft blows here. I'm not trying to do, and I said this about my show in New York, I don't do feel-good radio. I'm not telling you to listen to my show so you can feel good. I'm telling you to listen to the show so you can leave and, and be empowered and say, look, I heard something that I'm going to repeat now. I heard something that helps me verbalize what I've already knew but never knew how to put to words. Not just because John Cain said it, but perhaps because some of my guests have. But that's that's why we do the show, and we couldn't do it if we didn't have really, really consistent support from again ERW, uh, uh, you know, Rothschild Enterprises, and from uh, Grand River Enterprises. Could, couldn't do it. Now, look, I know there are others that that do support the show in in a variety of ways. There's there's some that occasionally will drop a check in the mail and and help us, you know, get out, you know when we, when we get up against a wall and you know we're a little tight or we need to buy some new equipment. Um, uh, have a major breakdown or whatever else. Look, this is what I do. So anybody who supports, not just the, the guys who do it weekly or monthly, but but the ones who even do it occasionally, you guys help in a big way. 
But you, I, I also got to give a shout out to those of you who help by sharing the show. Those of you who, again, encourage people to be to subscribe to to the group pages or to the the podcast or to the YouTube channel. Those of you who share the show, folks like my wife, who at the start of every show shares our Facebook live streaming on you know several dozen uh, group pages, and she does that every show, and that's why it's so available for people to to see it. Now I look the idea of listening to a full one hour video on Facebook may not always appeal to people. But you know, so what we do is we take that show, we put it up on our YouTube channel. But on our YouTube channel, we also have short form videos. Sometimes they're only five, six, seven, maybe 10 minutes long, including the last one that we did, the one uh, on, on uh, Columbus uh, in his own words. And I encourage it. We've had uh, over you know, almost, uh, what, 2,200, uh, 2,200 views on that video. And the reason that there, it's been viewed that many times in a relatively short period of time is because people are sharing it. And, and I have to thank those of you who do that. But the reason to share it isn't just to give me views. The reason to share it is so people know the information. So whether it's the Ruth Bader Ginsburg video or the, you know, the, uh, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act video you know, or my definition and clear defining of racism, which is you know like with this show, sometimes we have to take the time to make sure that these definitions of these words are not muddled. And like I said, the easiest way to, to confuse a word is to stick a word in front of it, like culture, cultural genocide. So that's why today I wanted to make a firm commitment to be clear about what genocide means, what it is, and why we say it still continues. And, and, and that... It, we're not just saying it. We can we can produce the evidence. Assimilation is exactly C in the definitions. It is deliberately inflicting on a group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. Look, I did a show, I don't know, a month or maybe a, a month ago, and I said, look, yeah, that's racist too. And what I was referring to is the failure to recognize us as a distinct people is in in of itself a racist act. Because if you refuse, and when I say you, I don't mean John Doe on the street. I mean Governor Cuomo, President Trump, Senator Schumer. If any of you people who claim to be in, in, in positions of authority or power can look at me and say, no, I refuse to recognize you as a distinct person, that is an act of racism. Because, for one thing, your refusal to do so is your imposition of, you know, again, your attempt to subjugate me. Because there, there is no legal act. There's no treaty. There's no surrender. There's no, um, uh, you know, praying for, for some sort of relief where we say, please make us one of yours. There's never been a wholesale um, request by Native people to become U.S. citizens. Now, on the flip side, the United States passed a law declaring that all Native people were, were here by U.S. citizens. But just because the United States says it's so doesn't mean that it is so. We have a choice in the matter. That Look, the, the, the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924 is a specific act of genocide. It is, by definition, denationalization. So when 
any elected official, state, federal, local, any cop who refuses to recognize us as a as distinct peoples, you are guilty of a war crime. Now you can say it's it's just ignorance because that's what your government tells you, but now you heard otherwise. Racism oftentimes has a direct connection to to not to genocide. Look, when we say genocide, oftentimes people make the leap to things like ethnic cleansing, because sometimes ethnic cleansing and genocide get get used hand in hand. And here's the problem: because there is such outrageous global conflict when we as native people talk about genocide and 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 clearly and and legitimately cite assimilation as a as one of the elements of genocide it's easy for people to say oh well, yeah but you're not being killed like those in somalia or the you're, you're not being you know killed like the you know the folks in syria look we understand there's there's you know there are atrocities happening all over the world but just because you can ratchet up the death and destruction or the or the the bloodiness of the acts of genocide that are being committed against other people we've got plenty of that in our history but just because there there seems to be a kinder gentler version of genocide playing on the united states it doesn't mean that it's still not genocide the idea that you you'll take our 5 year old kids in school and then teach them bullshit about columbus or pilgrims or Pocahontas, you know what? I, I, it may not seem, it may seem benign, but that's genocide too, because when you purposely twist history around and you strip away the truth and impose a lie, that by definition is genocide, and that's what our children go through the moment they are exposed to the institutions of the United States. So again, why do I take such time talking about things like racism and trying to explain it and define it and and, and make it clear the difference between racism and racial bias or racism, discrimination, and prejudice? No, those three things do not mean the same thing. It's because there's a willful ignorance to try to lump things in together. So if a black guy says, yeah, I don't like white people. Oh, that's racist. No, it isn't. Not liking somebody or even hating somebody is not in of itself an act of racism. It may be based on racial bias. And where does that racial bias come from? <laughs> from being the victims of racism. So when I talk about genocide, it's really important that people understand what it means. And 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 understand that it continues. It's not hyperbole to say that the the conditions that that allow and create missing and murdered indigenous women is genocide. No, it's not. It's not an exaggeration. It's a definition. And and when we talk about residential schools, look, and the United States won't even address this stuff. They have not looked at residential schools or missing and murdered indigenous women. Oh yeah, they'll still, they'll try to throw some packaged together in some legislation calling it violence against women we'll even we'll even mention specifically native women yeah and then what you don't renew the act so what then it goes back to status quo you pass the indian child welfare act and yet we still have kids being ripped out of homes 
and and uh, you know and and being raised by white people. It still exists today. Then you they use the the Canadian U.S. border so they can bypass some of the regulations that might make it otherwise difficult for a white uh, a wealthy white family in the United States to have their own little brown baby. Okay, well you can bring in a brown baby from Canada. Just can't take one from a reservation. It is important that people understand what these definitions are. And it's important to acknowledge and recognize that we aren't just bitching here. We aren't just whining here. And we aren't just claiming victim. Because, you know, in spite of all that effort, genocide going back to Columbus, over 500 years, we're still here. We're still here. And you know what? In many ways, for some of us, not all of us, our identities are more intact today than they were 50 years ago. A hundred years ago, 150 years ago, in the mid 1800s, our popula- a population of, of over a hundred million people had gotten reduced down to a quarter of a million people. Almost extinction. Almost complete elimination. The, the elimination of a population, a 96 to 98% elimination of a population. Continental wide. Not just off of an island in the Caribbean, but an entire continent. They have 98% of the population wiped out. But you know what? There's more than 250,000 of us now. And I'm not saying we're going to overpopulate the, the earth or we're going to surpass on the, we're still the population wise, we're still the most marginalized people in the U.S. and in Canada. There are more Haitian refugees in the United States than there are native people. There are more Puerto Rican people who identify as Puerto Rican in the United States, not just in Puerto Rico, but in the United States, than there are native people across the whole continent. That's how marginalized our population still is. Uh, it still is. But we're here. And you know what? We've learned a lot. Not We haven't, we haven't become more civilized. <laughs> Anything but. But we've learned an awful lot about you. We've learned an awful lot about the way government works. Yeah, and some of our people suck right into it. Say, oh, yeah, the only way to, to fight the United States is to join the United States. Yeah, I'm not in that camp. And... You know, look, if we end up having allies in the United States government, I don't care what color, whether they're they're native people who managed to get elected by white people or whether they're, they're, they're black officials or white officials, look, we'll take the allies wherever they come. But if you are part of the United States government, you may be an ally, but you're not us anymore. Look, even I, look, Deborah Hallen, Sharice David. Look, you're, you're Americans. I right, look. You can talk. You can you can show me your tribal ID, but you're a part of them, and hopefully you're a better part of them. But you're not better being a part of them. You left your people to join them. That's you know, and, and look, that's just a matter of fact. And because there are choices, look, I did a show a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago. Maybe I don't remember. Maybe a couple of shows ago. The path that we take is our choice. We can talk about what genocide has done. 
We can talk about the conditions that were created to make our lives more adverse. But every day we still have a choice. And our choice begins with how we identify ourselves. I mean, that's a choice. Do we claim to be Canadians? Americans? U.S. citizens? Quebecois? I mean, do we, or do we use our own language, our own words? Do we, are we Gunyagahaga, Unyotaaga, Kayugaaga, Onondaga, Onondawaga? Are we Ungwe Ungwe? That's the choice that we make. Nobody else, I mean, it doesn't matter they have the Indian Act or the Indian Reorganization Act or, or, you know, the Indian Citizen, any, any of that crap that U.S. or Canada does. That, does not dictate to us who we are. It may dictate to them how they want to choose to identify us, but they don't get to choose our identity. We do. You know what? Your mom and dad don't even get to choose how you identify yourself. If you're if, if you're a part of three generations of Catholicism or Mormonism or anything else, as you stand here today, you get to decide whether you're going to reject all that Christian dogma. Whether you are three or four generations of military families, it's you get to decide. You say, no, not me. I'm not going to go fight for them. I'm not going to go kill brown people on another part of, the, uh, part of the planet because it's in the United States national interest. No. We all get to choose. Our parents don't choose for it. And you know what? Elected officials, native elected officials, chiefs, clan mothers, counselors, president, tribal chairman, whatever. They don't get to choose either. We give them the opportunity to carry our voice, but if they don't carry it accurately, they don't dictate to us. We get to choose. Now, what we don't get to choose are the facts of history. I mean, truth is what truth is. And the truth is that Native people have been victims of genocide by many countries. I mean, the idea that the, that, that that baton has been handed from Spanish to Dutch to German to French to English to Americans, and then within these these cultures, if you want to call them cultures, they get to be handed off to churches, to clansmen, to Knights of Columbus that even within their groups they can they can hand off some of this will to you know uh, to spew racial bias and to continue the acts of genocide look that baton gets handed off to a kindergarten teacher who's going to fill our heads the heads of our children with bullshit but we get to decide what we do with our knowledge, including sharing it with our children or correcting our elders. My good friend Sugar Montour told me that I need to write the book Lies My Elders Told Me. And that is a commitment that I, that, that I plan on fulfilling. So the title of the book is will be Lies My Elders Told Me. The, uh, the cognitive dissonance of assimilation. Why, why are, does it have a subtitle and what, what is the connection there? Because we have had 
multiple generations that have experienced different levels of genocide. Not always the softer, kinder genocide of assimilation. And I'll tell you, assimilation is not always kind, uh, kind and softer either. But we have had generations of people who have experienced genocide in such a manner that they were forced to encourage us not to speak our language. They were forced to not hand down certain teachings and elements of our culture. They were forced to lie to us and to tell us we were better off not being hung up on our native identity. No, this was said. When there's a conscious decision in one or two generations to no longer teach the language to our children, that's a lie being told by our own people. That's a lie that they believed that we would be better off not being criticized and ridiculed and the victims of racism because we speak another language. They were wrong. It was a lie they told us. Now, I'm not hateful for the, the generations that got us to the uh, to where we are today. But I'm not going to pretend that everything was done right. Look, I feel strongly that language is important, but it is important to realize that much of what we experienced in terms of genocide, much of what we experienced in terms of being defrauded of our lands and screwed this way or that way, occurred while we still had our language. So for those who will say, well, you know, if we had our language, uh, you know, this wouldn't happen or that wouldn't happen. Look, I think it's important to have our language. But it's also important that we are where we're at today in terms, in terms of understanding who our oppressors are. The reason I advocate decolonization, and, and I explain that decolonization isn't the idea of voting for a, a candidate that's going to favor Native people. That's not decolonization. That's assimilation. Decolonization is untangling ourselves from the systems of oppression. And I'm not suggesting that there aren't some of those things that, those systems that need to be destroyed. But you know what? If Americans love them, you 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 love the politics you got. You love being a Democrat. Then be a a Democrat. But don't ask me to be one. You love your President Trump. Then fine, go ahead. But don't expect me to. I I want to you know, that I want to wash that slime off of me. We need to strip away the systems of oppression. Why? Because they are still committing genocide against our people. Tomorrow, they will still be committing genocide against our people. Tomorrow, we'll still have a debate whether the roads that go through our territory are really our land. Tomorrow, we'll still have the debate whether the Cattaraugus Territory of Seneca Nation lies within Erie County. Why? That is again the refusal to acknowledge our distinction. That again is the stripping away of our national character and imposing theirs. But we are still here. 
And look, I'm not the only voice saying this stuff, and I don't want to pretend that I, you know, or suggest that I am. I may be the only one doing it in this way and, 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 and creating a platform so more people can hear this thing. But I know as I say what I'm, the things that I said to you today, many of you who are listening are saying, I agree with them. In fact, I don't agree with them just because he said it now. I agreed with them yesterday. I, I thought this long, all along. The reason I do this is so that some of you, perhaps who haven't heard this, who are suffering with the cognitive dissonance of assimilation, that tension about how we live our lives today, it is right to live with that tension until we strip away some of that stuff. So I have these conversations, these tougher conversations, so all of us can understand that cognitive dissonance, that tension that we're living under. And so we can take the steps to relieve that tension. That's what we do here. I want to thank you for listening. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. And look, we'll be back here on Sunday. Again, Saturday's the NAMIs. I'll be, uh, I'll be at the Seneca Niagara Casino. So we'll be doing our Saturday show, our normal Saturday show on Sunday night. We'll see you on Sunday night. Yahweh.